welcome to Hippo Brain. Here is where we try and have hypo-sized conversations with people with hypo-sized brains. We try and getting varied people. As um, our today's speaker told us, it's lovely to be a fly on the wall during a conversation that's happening uh, between interesting people on interesting topics. I am extremely excited that today is going to be one of those days where I think I'm going to be on a fly on the wall in front of two absolute stalwarts and who's trying to explain stuff that I can only dream to understand. Rajesh, over to you to explain and to introduce our, our next speaker. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Hippobrain. Our guest today is someone I've known for 35 years, and I can't say that about too many people. Ajay Shah, and I met Ajay first on a trek that we had gone together in IIT Bombay in the mid 80s. Uh, so Ajay uh, is works at the intersection of economics, law, and public administration. Uh, of course, IIT Bombay, aeronautical engineering, a PhD in economics from USCLA, CMIE, Center for Monitoring Indian Economy, IGIDR, Indira Gandhi Institute of Development Research, then um, in the government, uh, Ministry of Finance, and then at NIPFP, uh, which is the think tank of the Ministry of Finance, and now an independent scholar. Welcome to Hippobrain Ajay. Thanks, Rajesh, and I'm very happy to be here. So, um, Ajay, we'll start a little bit about how you fell in love with economics. I always knew you in IIT as an aeronautical engineer, and then a few years later, I found out you run a PhD in economics. How did that happen? So, uh, my father was an economist, and all my life I had done conversations with him. I talked with him about things that were on his mind. Uh, when I was 10 years old, he founded CMIE. So I had a ringside view of his thought process in uh, the dream of CMIE and the concept of what CMIE should be all about. So that was all on my mind. And uh, when I was 17, when we were in the first year, uh, he died. So I really did not have him afterwards. But towards the end of uh, the time at IIT, one had to think about what to do next. And you will forgive me for claiming that I felt engineering was a little too easy. That, you know, doing... <laughs> Uh, building planes and doing computer engineering felt finite and uh, physics felt too hard. So economics was like a Goldilocks thing, like not too easy, not too hard. And I, I was always drawn to this sense of understanding the world. My concept of economics has been more a 19th century concept of economics rather than the narrow technical stuff that academic economists do today. It's good to understand the world. It's good to think about the world and you know maybe be a part of fixing some things. So that was always the dream. And by the way, this is Ajay's book. It's a must read. It's a beautiful read, very easy to read uh, with Vijay Kelkar in service of the Republic. Um, once you get into it, you just like it's start to finish type of thing. Um, uh, very nicely explained ideas on public policy and full of uh, fascinating stories. And of course, we'll cover a little bit of that as we go forward today. Rajay, I want to ask you a very simple question. Why is India poor? You know, this whole belief is that, oh, the British uh, left India poor. We are poor because of our large population. Um, <clears throat> why, why is India not rich like Singapore, South Korea and other countries? Yeah. So uh, I, I'll, I want to first quickly say that it is hard to blame a large part of the answer on the British. And it is definitely not correct to blame the population. So there are lots of bad theories about what is going on. I want to jump right to the answer that I feel is going on. So amongst economists in the olden days, there used to be this conception that uh, poor countries have low capital stock. Okay, So capital stock is urban metro systems and highways and airports and factories and you know office complexes in cities and all that. So the idea was that you had to accumulate capital and then you would become rich. Uh, over the years, I've really lost my uh, sense that the capital is the binding constraint, particularly because in today's world of financial globalization, the amount of capital available outside the world is essentially infinity. So I really cannot buy the story that the capital is the constraint. So what is the constraint? The constraint is all of us. It is we, how we talk to each other, how we work with each other, how we build organizations. And then the most important organization of all is the government. Okay, that the government has to create conditions in which the private sector will create prosperity. So my mental model is that all 
wealth, all prosperity is created by private people who build firms, who build businesses. And we need the government to create things like a sensible judiciary, a sensible taxation system, a sensible criminal justice system. These are the foundations that have to be there in the country so that private people feel safe and then private people commit and then private people will build businesses and out of that will come the prosperity. So yes, there is a learning curve of how private people build businesses. Okay, so all of us know that firms in India are not that great and there are many things to learn in being a high quality firm in India. But my sense is that the growth rates there of learning, of capability, of organizational capacity, of knowledge amongst all of us, of what is a capable firm in India, that knowledge can grow pretty dramatically. You know, roughly speaking, you can double that knowledge every 10 years. You can get 7% growth on a sustained basis in terms of the capabilities of the firms. All three of us have lived that in India. We have seen how we have each of us been around fairly weak and mediocre firms at the outset. And over a decade or so, you can really build out a firm to world-class. So my mental model is that the sophistication and the capability of the Indian private sector is enough to make India an advanced country within one generation. But that didn't happen. Three times over in the past, that didn't happen. It's not going to happen in the next 25 years. Why? The bottleneck is the Indian state. It is the Indian state that is the weak link in the Indian growth journey. So Ajay, if I, if I basically probe that a little bit more, what you're saying is that the constraint really comes from the hurdles that successive governments in India have put on the capacity of private firms to create prosperity. Is that a sort of, and that's, that's really leads to poverty. That, 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 yes. that's, uh, that puts us on a different path from prosperity. Fundamentally, yes, but I just want to be a little nuanced around the word hurdles, uh, because sometimes many of us, myself included, we tend to rush to a deregulatory agenda. We tend to think, I want to get the government out of this. Okay? So the fact is, there is no running away from a certain amount of government. If you have a banking system, you will need a banking regulator. There is no running away. You cannot have an unregulated banking system. So it, the puzzle is that banking regulation has to do the right things. It is... The word hurdles suggests a pure deregulatory agenda, and that's not where I am. The puzzle is how to make banking regulation do the things that banking regulation has to do. Our agenda is not to shut down banking regulation. Our agenda is how to achieve sensible, sane, intelligent banking regulation, as opposed to a central planning system, as opposed to arbitrary power in the hands of inspectors and officials We just... Uh, threatens private people with expropriation and exerts non-rule of law power over private people. That's the tension that I feel we need to think about. But yes, in many, many, many areas, there is actually a simple deregulatory agenda, which is what the state is doing is just inappropriate and it should not be in our lives. So, uh, Ajay, uh, forgive my ignorance, but um, see, I was born, I've often said I've born in 1975. That makes me a golden boy. Because in 91, I entered college and 91 was <laughs> one of India's greatest <laughs> uh, flip over years. And when I exited college and finished my MBA, India was ripe to take on people like me. Yeah. And I do appreciate a lot of what uh, deregulation has brought in and what private enterprise has brought in. But sometimes some part of me and the kind of uh, economics that probably I learned before liberalization or the economics that we were taught, is that when you allow private sector, some of the core uh, sectors or a lot of the mass of people of India get missed out. There is an align misalignment of in incentives because the rich keep getting better services, better um, prosperity, better access to capital. But a lot of the poor aren't able to enjoy the benefits out of it is one theory. So uh, just a simple one. Many times I've looked at it that I probably afford the same plane ticket. But if I go back 20 years, or sometimes if I have had the not so happy, this thing of going to Delhi by train, it's the same train. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the same thing. So uh, I, I don't know whether uh, a private uh, enterprise or allowing a lot of private com uh, coming in, private enterprise coming in, can really lift 
a large part of the poor masses out into prosperity so i'd like to answer this in three parts first is the fact is that from 1991 to 2011 the 20 years when india got growth uh, we got the greatest poverty reduction in india's history so 300 million people exited poverty in a period from 91 to 2011 and that's an unprecedented achievement not before not after we have not got that kind of poverty reduction ever other than the glory years of 91 to 2011 for 20 years india grew well and delivered something great for everybody second uh when we look all around the world we find that high gdp growth is the only solution to poverty there is no way to make the life of the average person better there's no way to make the life of poor people better without uh getting to high gdp growth there's no country in the world that uh, made the life of its people better without achieving very high gdp growth uh, my friend land pritchett tells it in a very nice and striking way the story he tells is like this uh suppose you look at the correlation across countries and across time of two numbers the poverty rate the uh, cross country comparable poverty rate which is the percentage of the people who are uh, consuming less than a dollar a day okay this is a comparable value which can be used all across the world this is a ppp comparable 1 dollar a day and you juxtapose that against the median income of the country again expressed in ppp dollars this relationship has a correlation of 99% okay that's it you want to change poverty you have to change the median income the remaining 1% can be explained by various welfare programs whatever else you want to do okay and my third point would be yeah we can have our own political preferences i believe that there should be some uh, welfare programs for poor people i feel there should be you know a large amount of government funding that goes into education vouchers and scholarships so that poor people have better opportunities in life but to run all that you need money and that money can only come when there is wealth creation in the country so there's no running away from the primal problem we've got to create prosperity lots of other things will follow similarly if you look at the field of health okay there is public health that is really the government's work you got to do lots of preventive stuff that the government can do when you get to healthcare really the dominant problem is money you need a certain amount of money to buy a certain amount of healthcare there's no running away from that it is just not possible to make significant progress for healthcare for poor people in a poor country you need to become rich so i would just urge all of us as deng xiaoping said it is truly great to become rich we should never lose our focus on that goal we've got to keep our eyes on the ball the development of sophisticated firms in the country the creation of wealth and prosperity in the country should be really our number one agenda we do that lots of things are going to go right we fail to do that we will potentially get back into the kind of sadness of india of the 70s so you may recall the kind of anger there was the riots there were the young men not getting jobs you know we that's the kind of horrible social stress and conflict that we can get if the engine of growth stops performing so ajay essentially what you're saying is the following that before we get to all the welfare we need wealth creation in the country yes. so we need to incentivize wealth creation yes and uh, in your book you basically talk about sort of the mark 1 mark 2 mark 3 yes uh, reforms i mean yes. we all keep hearing about oh india needs reforms 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 yes but there's very little sort of agreement on yes. on reforms yes now what what is it that india needs Yes. I think it will be good to just take us down sort of a little bit memory lane yeah. on the three periods that you okay. refer to okay. uh, and how that sort of laid the foundation till 2011 yeah. for institutional reforms. Yeah. So uh Kelkar and I have a certain story in our minds about how we got here and particularly for young people born in 1975 right incredibly young people who don't have who do not have this lived experience here's the strategic view about what happened in india okay so we got started in 1947 and uh, uh, there were great people like nehru and mahalanabis and they got going on a certain state led model the mental model was that the state is the key driver and there will be a developmental state and the state will generate growth in the country okay and they got going with that and in the 50s 
it did work reasonably well. It generated significant growth. Then uh, we got into the worst period of India's history, starting from 1962. So 1962, we lost the China war. In uh, 1964, Nehru died. In 1965, we had the Pakistan war. In 1965, Shastri died. Then in 64, 65, and 65, 66, we had two terrible consecutive droughts. We went around the world with a begging bowl asking people to give us wheat. Okay, For example, the United States gifted us wheat to stave off mass starvation in India at the time. Then Indira Gandhi consolidated power, and that was a terrible period in India's history because concentration of power is always a bad thing. Power corrupts, and concentration of power generates terrible results. So once Indira Gandhi consolidated power, things started going really badly. In 69 came bank nationalization. In the beginning of 71, Indira Gandhi got 370 seats in the Lok Sabha. You can imagine what kind of terrifying power that would give. And in late 71, Indira Gandhi achieved the ultimate nationalist wet dream. Uh, she won the war with Pakistan. Okay, Again, you can imagine how that would consolidate power and create incredible amounts of legitimacy in a country that you know is always vulnerable to nationalism. And then everything collapsed because concentration of power goes badly. So by 72, 73, 74, things really fell apart. And we had widespread, a widespread economic crisis. We had the JP movement. And then came the collapse of democracy in uh, 75, uh, in 76, in 77. Okay, So 62 to 77 for a 14 uh, year period. This is uh, India's worst period. And all of us should mull over this period over and over because this is how a long dark period can look like. And you know, you've got to constantly wonder that how is it that in 1977, we did not end up like Vladimir Putin's Russia or Erdogan's uh, Turkey or Xi Jinping's China. Okay, as they say, it took an Indira Gandhi's son to uh, declare the emergency, but it took Jawaharlal Nehru's daughter to end the emergency, okay? We came this close to becoming a terrible, crappy third world country at that moment, but we got out of that. Now by 77, uh, the intelligentsia of India had really understood that this is broken, okay? Whether you think of the politics or you think of the economics. So I remember my father used to always say one thing about the emergency. He used to say, this is not what we fought the freedom movement for, that's it. You know, We did not get rid of the British for this to, be oppressed by the Indian state. That was not what it was all about ever. So there was a great amount of soul searching based on the economic failure of the 70s and the emergency and new ideas started coming. So the prime minister was Moraji Desai, the finance minister was H.M. Patel, the deputy chairman of the planning commission was D.T. Lakrawala, and these people began a process of change. Many interesting people started coming into the Indian economic policy system who were not the traditional statist socialist uh, people. Uh, and the good thing for India is that when Indira Gandhi came back in 1980, she continued down the path of these kinds of changes. When Rajiv Gandhi became prime minister, he continued down these changes. And all this generated decent growth through the 80s. But India was still a very autarchic country. It was a closed country. And that gave us the moment for the reforms of 91, where a great deal of pro-globalization stuff was done. We removed trade barriers, we opened up to foreign investment, and that takes us all the way. That process uh, beautifully implemented, particularly in the Vajpayee period in 1999 to 2004, I feel we got the first full-blown attempt at turning India into a market economy. And that gave us the energy of high GDP growth all the way from 91 to 2011. Okay? So this is what we call Mark II. So Mark I was the old Indian socialism. Mark II is this first attempt and I think of it more as a deregulatory attempt. You try to get out of the way in certain things. But we did not solve problems at the foundations. We did not solve the lack of rule of law that is riven into the Indian system, where all, at all kinds of places, bureaucrats and officials have arbitrary power. And we did not figure out the principles and philosophy of what it means to be a market economy. What is the appropriate role of the state? For example, we had a loose slogan that you should not do central planning, but you need regulation. And we didn't put enough structure on those words. We didn't understand the words central planning. We didn't understand the words regulators. 
So we've set up lots of regulators and today the regulators are the new central planners. The regulators in India today do more central planning and they have more arbitrary power and they do more uh, license permit Raj and inspector Raj than what the departments of government used to in 1991. Okay, so we've really hit a brick wall in terms of that deregulatory agenda and we have not understood the deeper problems of arbitrary power, of rule of law, of the appropriate role of the state and of creating conditions where the private sector will feel safe and have the appropriate incentives where the government is doing a few things and doing them well. We did not learn how to construct state capacity. And all this is what Kelkar and I call the Mark III agenda, that we need to understand that something went fundamentally wrong in the Indian growth story in about 2011. 2011 is the peak year. So, of course, I don't want to imply that something happened in 2011. It is the events of the previous 5-10 years that added up that there's the turning point in the data in 2011. That after 2011, we have failed to achieve growth. And this is not a matter of doing a few actions here and there. We've got to go deeper. We've got to understand deeply what went wrong. And our story is that what went wrong is that there is an increasing gap between the capabilities and the behavior of the Indian state versus the kind of capabilities that are required for creating the enabling conditions for the sophisticated Indian private sector to power its way from $2 trillion to $5 trillion to $10 trillion. So Ajay, you were in government in the early 2000s in the Ministry of Finance. Yes. And that was sort of the middle period of yes. this 20 uh, year uh, period that he talked about, nine, 1991 to 2011. Yes. And at that time, it seemed for a brief moment in time that the process was unstoppable. Yes. That India would reclaim its place, probably mirror China's growth that we had yeah. all started to see at that time. Yeah. And suddenly it falls apart. Yes. Uh, why do you think that happened? Because I think one of the things you do mention is that that intellectual foundations and yeah. the people who were required, yes. all the groundwork that had to be done, sort of did not get done for the Mark III. Can you yes. build, build on that a little bit for us? Yeah. So uh, that, that's a very uncomfortable set of questions for me personally. Okay. So I've been involved in Indian public policy from 93 onwards. I've had an opportunity to uh, read, review, debate, criticize innumerable Indian policy documents, uh, dozens of amendments to laws, uh, dozens of committee reports through this entire period. And so I think a lot about this period and you know where did we go wrong? What were we thinking? What worked? What didn't work? And speaking for me personally, I want to say it was an intellectual failure. So for instance, I was intimately involved in the securities markets work all through these years. And uh, we just did not understand enough of what is the meaning of the word arbitrary power. We did not understand rule of law. So we did numerous amendments and one constitutional amendment uh, to establish the modern Indian equity market. But we just did not understand how dangerous it can be when there are regulatory organizations and the central planning and the inspector Raj and the raids will be conducted by the regulators. We just didn't build in those checks and balances. Uh, I am an economist and many of the key people around me were economists. And uh, the economists just did not bring an adequate conception of public administration, of law, of basic foundations of the political view of the world, which is about the state as a coercive agent and the problem of civil liberties. We, was, we were so drunk in our conception of economics as being the most important thing that we tended to shortchange those foundations. So my understanding today is that we just didn't have the intellectual toolkit on how to think about this. And so for Kelkar and me, this book is a part of that endless soul searching that Kelkar and I coined the phrase India is on the growth turnpike, that we were ready to achieve escape velocity. We were ready for that demographic dividend where in the next 25 years, there was going to be a great surge of young people in India. And the firms of India would be ready to harness that opportunity in a globalized environment. The firms would be export oriented. The firms would get infinite capital from the world. And we were ready to become a rich country. We would grow rich before we got old. That was a story on our minds. We talked about this story endlessly. And yet in a fundamental way, that did not happen. And I feel that that was an intellectual failure. Uh, so I think ideas matter more than most people think. So you need a political coalition. You need a politics that works. So. Uh, when Jaswant Singh died, some of us from that 
Ministry of Finance period who had the privilege of working with Jaswan Singh. We've been getting together on phone calls, on video calls, and just reminiscing about those that period and our experiences with him. And we again realized that it was a mind-blowing moment in India's history when there was a prime minister like Atal Bihari Vajpayee and a finance minister like Jaswan Singh. These were modern people. These were liberals. These were people who dreamed for India on a 25-year scale. These were people who put the interests of the Republic of India first and would take short-term political costs in return for the agenda of building India as a mature market economy. Just one thing would endlessly ask us. We have to do the thing so that in 25 years, we are competing with the UK. He was always set on the idea that in one generation, I want to be better than the UK. He was not playing for everyday political games. It was a singular moment in India's history. We had that political moment. I just feel that we didn't have the level of knowledge that was required. So, you know, in some ways, do you ever fantasize? I do. Do you ever fantasize that if you could get one ticket on a time machine, what would you do with it? My fantasy is I'd like to take one book to Jawaharlal Nehru. That would be like the most transformative thing you could do because this is a great guy. This is, you know, one of the best thinkers of the whole world who became head of state in India and made some terrible mistakes. You know, if only you could argue with him and explain some stuff to him, it would have such a massive impact on what happened in the country. So in similar fashion, you know, I often wonder like, what would I say to myself? What would I say to Kelkar? What would I say to many of the other protagonists of 10 years ago, of 20 years ago, of 25 years ago? Because uh, we didn't know these things. We didn't understand how important it is to lay these foundations of the state. We were just thinking that yeah, you need to do inflation targeting and that will be a good thing. Uh, Ajay, again, let me ask you a little more common. Uh, what you're saying is just blowing my mind away. And uh, I had three, four questions, but the last thing what you said really just touched a nerve. We've, I've grown up on two, two parts to it, okay? The first part of my life, everybody just praising Nehru, okay? All my textbooks, etc. The second part of my life, everybody just reviling, like he did everything wrong. But when I look back, what is a more balanced view? And a, and a little bit of a question here is that at that point of time, did he really have a choice? Because we, we got our independence on throwing foreign capital and foreign power outside. And we needed to build in the state and we had to build some some of the state what was his fault and what was his greatness because you you speak both at the same time so if you just take some time and to explain lay people on this so uh, i would like to say three things first is that in the post-colonial transition india looks fantastic okay at that horrible level of uh, income and uh, development we managed to come out with a half plausible democracy. And I think the credit goes entirely to Nehru. Nehru nurtured Indian democracy. Nehru encouraged, helped people in the parliament make trouble for him. Okay. Nehru wrote anonymous articles in the newspapers attacking the centralization of power around Nehru. And that's just unique. So uh, we should all remember in 1947, female literacy in India was 6%. That was our starting point. It was an absolutely terrible point. India is a precocious child that at an early stage, we managed to get some semblance of civilization and decency and democracy. And I give enormous credit for that to Nehru. Second, by and large, I think the economic strategy was wrong. Okay, So there's a famous Milton Friedman memo to India of that time. And I think Milton Friedman was right and Nehru was wrong. So this whole state-led model, in my opinion, was a mistake. Third, um, we should be a little kind because in that age, you or I may have thought similarly. So in that age, the UK was going back to very statist and socialist policies. In that age, you'd come out of the Second World War. In the Second World War, all countries in the world had basically become government dominated. You had to mobilize the, all the resources of the entire country to fight the Second World War. In the early 20th century, it was felt that liberal democracy did not work, that you could collapse into a Nazi model or you could collapse into a communist model. And people like John Maynard Keynes, who were the greatest uh, enthusiasts and believers in the dream of liberal democracy, were saying that, you know, you have to do some amount of socialism because the alternative is barbarism. The alternative is, is you will either collapse into some right-wing nationalist Germany or some left-wing horror of the Soviet Union. And the only way to preserve some civilization is to do some socialism. So that was the world Nehru was in. He was reading the best thinkers of the time. He was friends with the best thinkers of the time. And he made some calls. With hindsight, 
we think those calls were wrong. I think those calls were wrong. Okay, at that same age, people like Hayek and Friedman were thinking on the right track. But it's fair to see that in that age, Hayek and Friedman were the exceptions and not the norm. The mainstream was much closer to where Nehru was, and it was a difficult world to make those choices. So with the benefit of hindsight, I feel that many of the choices that he made were not correct. He did some wonderful things, okay? Uh, he built the IITs, okay? Your higher education and Rajesh and my higher education is the creature of incredibly far-sighted investments that Nehru made. Today, if I'm able to say that there is a sophisticated elite in India that knows how to build firms that will power India up to becoming the UK, that is entirely because of the research and education and the scientific foundations that were laid by Nehru. Okay? It was Nehru who built that institutional infrastructure. So we can talk many things about what he did right and what he did wrong. And I feel that the fundamental economic strategy was wrong. And I feel that it's a pity because he had the capacity to do it right and to do better than many others in the world. Certainly on the politics, he did better than you know, most other uh, leaders in the post-colonial transition. Most other post-colonial countries just became some disgusting, populist, violent, ugly leaders who just you know, became like the median persons of the country. So uh, Indian exceptionalism is the idea that in a country with 6% uh, female literacy in 1947, we could still emerge and become a sophisticated, capable leadership of the country. So Ajay, if I cut to sort of the present, I mean, one of the things you talk about in your book is the need for institutions over GDP. Yes. And one of the things we are also sort of have seen, um, uh, especially in the post sort of 2011 era, is sort of the, the rise of a much more um, tougher form of politics. And part of the reason why the focus on sort of economics and growth has diminished is because uh, politicians don't tend to pay a very heavy price for economic mismanagement. Yes. So what are the institutions that we really need to think about? Uh, you talked about the role of intellectuals and ideas. So if we look forward from where we are now, what are the institutions that we need to start thinking about creating in India for getting growth uh, going again? So the first key argument that Kelkar and I make is that state capacity is something finite. It is not infinite. Okay, So we should think of a country with low state capacity as a household with a very small budget. You have less resources. Think wisely about where you will put that. And what is this resource? It is the resource of money, but far more important, it is the resource of time. There are very few capable people available to the Indian leadership. There is very little time on the part of the Indian leadership. And what will you prioritize? What will you do with that limited resource that you have? Uh, we argue that there are really four areas which should demand the highest prioritization by uh, the project of uh, state building and the Mark III reforms. And they are the judiciary, the criminal justice system, uh, the tax system, and a certain amount of economic regulation. These are the top four priorities that these are absolutely fundamental requirements. So if you don't have a well-functioning judiciary, there is no possibility of civilization. If you don't have a criminal justice system, there is no possibility of civilization. If there is no sensible tax system, partly the state will not have money. It needs money to function. And partly a bad tax system will terrorize and oppress the populace. And finally, a certain amount of economic regulation is essential. That's like my banking regulation example. You need banks. And if there are to be banks, you will need banking regulation. You can't not have banking regulation. So it seems to me that these four are the minimum agenda that you've got to do these four. So I feel we've got to prioritize this. Um, in a lot of the development discourse, there tends to be a great deal of interest in uh, uh, things that uh, tug the heart and have more emotional resonance. So, you know, people will talk about poor people, people will talk about gender. So if you think of the uh, funding agenda of philanthropic organizations, if you will think about the interests of development economists, if you think about what is published in development journals, it tends to be very emotional that we'd like to help people. And I would just say that the most important thing we can do to help people is to achieve 25 years of sustained growth. And to get that 25 years of sustained growth, these four are the most important hard-headed priorities that make the judiciary work. 
it is more important to make the judiciary work than to feed children. Make the tax system work, make the criminal justice system work and do certain amount of economic regulation right. In my mind, these are the extremely important foundations of the possibility of growth in India. That should be our mark three. All of us should put time and effort into prioritizing that. Now, on the feedback loops that the politicians face, I agree with you that oftentimes it appears that in the short term, there's not much of a feedback loop. Again, I want to go to 1962 to uh, 1977. So it is true that uh, after significant failure in the 60s, Indira Gandhi won spectacularly in 1971. Okay, so in early 1971, uh, she won an election result that would have us just shaking our heads and wondering what the hell was going on. Okay, and after that, she won the war in Pakistan and all power was centralized in her. But, you know, it did not last very long. The economic distress leads to the country falling apart. You start getting people out in the streets. Finally, uh, <clears throat> sophisticated reading of history is that prosperity matters, growth matters, jobs matter, young men without jobs matters. And when there is large scale economic failure, it will generate social stress and that social stress will lead to a new kind of politics. Now it's up to the genius of the country about whether that new kind of politics can be a more healthy kind of politics. Like all in all, the JP movement and the Janta party and the INC clawed back from the failures of the 70s into a reasonably sensible outcome. Okay. And there are other countries where in Germany, the horrible economic failures of the Great Depression led to the Nazi party. Okay, this is the choice that we face as a nation that are we able to organize ourselves and put our emotional intensity into a healthy, good kind of politics of negotiation of a constructive approach to solving problems? Or do we go down something far more toxic? This is again, the soul of the nation is at stake. And, you know, India did something incredible in 1947. We came out of uh, post-colonial, uh, we came, we did the post-colonial transition in an extremely precocious way. We achieved something great. We became one of the few decent countries that came out of colonial rule with high freedom of speech and decent rule of law. Okay. India clawed out of the 62 to 77 moment in a pretty good way. We came out of the horrors of that collapse of freedom into something good. And we discovered the engine of growth for 91 to 2011. Now, this is the question we face all over again, that where will we go? Will we manage to channel our angst and energy into a good kind of politics or does it spiral downwards? Do we turn into a Turkey or a China or a Russia? Or do we become cool like India of 47, like India of 91 to 2011? It's interesting what you're saying, uh, Ajay, and uh, one hard hitting point that you made was uh, probably make, getting the judiciary to work is probably more important than feeding children. And I think this is what an economist, cold, rational, long thinking economist would bring to the table. And I really appreciate what you said. Just coming back to one little point that uh, just uh, rattled me is that we got to get rich before we get old. And in some ways, some of our demographic, demographic dividend, which we probably have, we seem to be in danger of wasting it or have wasted it in this current situation. Yeah. Is all hope lost? Yeah. So the sweet spot was 2010 to 2030. So we've lost nine years out of that. And uh, yeah, this, this is just a, another clock that is ticking that is extremely harmful for us. That uh, I want to <clears throat> say this in two ways. One is, of course, the opportunity to get rich. The other is spare a thought for the mind of an individual. Uh, there's something extremely harmful that happens to young men and women who don't get a life. So it is extremely, so there are two most important things in the life of every young man. And one of them is uh, finding a job. Okay. So men also need to learn to talk to women and that's another giant social problem in India. So if you think of hundreds of millions of young men who are, you know, not maturing in understanding their skills and understanding their engagement with the labor market, we have a very low employment rate in India. Most uh, young people in India do not have work. And I think that does psychic damage. And again, I worry about what happened in the Great Depression in Germany, about the kind of consequences that has when there are angry young people. What does that do to the politics? 
is something that is really dangerous and we should be worrying a lot about it. So again, it is very, very important to play this period correctly. And that sweet spot was about 2010 to about uh, 2030 or 2035. So we have what 30, 35 years starting in 2010 and we've you know, lost a chunk of that. It's not irrevocably lost, but uh, things are quite worrisome on that score. So we've had uh, uh, two hippo brains also speak. One hippo brain spoke about uh, India needs to get a lot of manufacturing right because you need to get skilled jobs. Yeah. And while services take uh, a certain set of the economy and a certain set of the labor force, yeah. manufacturing, skilled manufacturing seems to be one of the big things that India now needs to work on yeah. is what his contention is. Yeah. And we had another hippo brain speak and he said we moved and I think what you rightly also say from roti kapda makan to bijli sadak pani and now it is swast suraksha and siksha yeah. and uh, this is where uh, two hippo brains of uh, of been on our show explain how India needs to now uh, move ahead and use some of the uh, needs of the people to propel it forward would you agree to some of that? Uh, so first on the manufacturing and services question, uh, I'm not excited by uh, these distinctions. Okay, I just think we need to build great firms. Okay? So for me, the be all and end all is firms that hire millions of people. I, I just want more and more firms that hire people get rich, just get rich. I want to make firms that get rich and firms will hire people, people will have jobs. I don't get fussed about manufacturing versus services. Uh, it's not an exciting distinction. It particularly bothers me when there's a subtext in that uh, sentence that uh, you, you just quoted that we should do something about it. If you mean by public policy that we should do something about it, that we should do some industrial policy, that we should give some incentives to manufacturing, then I get very uncomfortable. I would just say to the Indian state, get out of the way. Okay. The job of the Indian state is to make a judiciary that works, to make a criminal justice system that works, to make a tax system that makes sense, that has some sanity of tax policy and a world where you and I are not scared of in interaction with uh, officials who are employed by the tax department and get some sanity into economic regulation. Once again, the same agenda that banking regulation should do the right things. It should not do central planning and it should not terrorize private people who are trying to start a bank. That's the agenda. And apart from that, I believe that the Indian state should get out of the way because after that, whether it makes more sense to do something manufacturing in India or it makes more sense to do something services in India, this should be the business decision of private people. I don't see a legitimate role for the Indian state in thinking about these things and trying to play a role about these things. Um, I would always like to tell a story about industrial policy, which is there in the uh, book that Kelkar and I have written. It is the story of Santa Cruz Electronic Export Processing Zone. Okay, so this was SEEPS. It was the idea of some policymakers that India is bad, we've shut off the world, we have all kinds of barriers, but we'll create one zone where you can do free trade, where you can import and export. And we think, because we're so smart, we're the policymaker, we know what's right for the country. We think that that should be for electronics. Okay, so Santa Cruz, electronics export processing zone. Okay, so SEEPS was created. And in that little zone of SEEPS, you could do free trade, you could import and export. Okay, now what came out of SEEPS? SEEPS did two great things for India. SEEPS was the birthplace of the Indian diamonds industry and SEEPS was the birthplace of the Indian software industry. Okay, so Rajesh, you will remember when we were in IIT, people used to go work for COSIN, Citicorp Overseas Software Limited. Okay, so many of our uh, colleagues and batchmates went to work for COSIN. And that was the proving ground where we learned that you can be in India, you can hire people in India, you can import computer hardware, you don't have to be self-reliant, you don't have to buy computer hardware made in India, and you can actually export computer software. And the people who came out of that SEEPS world are the progenitors of numerous firms all over the country because they took that business knowledge and they went and started more firms and started more firms. So the story I'd like to tell is the important thing was free trade get out of the way. Don't tell people what you can import, what you cannot export. Don't tell people how to be self-reliant. Just get out of the way. And people will discover what is a business model that works. The Indian state should not think, I know that the answer is electronics. The answer, in fact, was diamonds and software. These are two fantastic industries which were born out of that experiment. So let's not go into that central planning direction. And on 
the slogans on roti, roti kapra or makan and bichli sadak pani and so on. Um, I am very worried uh, about the extent to which there's a feedback loop from performance to election outcomes. Okay. Uh, Rajesh is, is the source of 90% of my knowledge about politics and uh, my understanding from him about how the game is played, how elections are won. It seems like an uncomfortable first-past-the-post political system where uh, there is a low link between performance and outcomes. So, uh, as I said, I look back at India's history and uh, it's fascinating watching Indira Gandhi's fall from grace from uh, 371 seats in early 71 to winning the Bangladesh war to a country that was up in flames with the JP movement and losing in 77. So I think that that's a playbook for how economic failure and social stress can morph into uh, political change. Yeah, I want to take you back a little bit. You know, there were two moments in time and I think why I want to do this is because it's nations are really built by the leaders and their decisions. Yes. And there were two moments in time and you sort of have seen both one of them you were really part of uh, was the 1991 when we had an amazing sort of people in power. Yeah. And you've said that at multiple times that there was a lot of groundwork that was done before that 91 moment yes. to make that possible. Yeah. And that continued uh, over the next decade leading to uh, under the Vajpayee government where you were part of the Jaswan Singh's team, yes. uh, which again uh, carried that forward. And I think one of the things you've said is that the danger now is that a lot of that institutional knowledge, the people who were involved, that sort of has fallen apart. Yes. And, uh, and like you've said, you know, without having the intellectual foundations, it's very difficult yes. to build the next set of uh, reforms or next set of transforms that India needs. Is, is there a possibility to change that? Because without the talent, without the people having the ideas, how are, how are we going to leverage this dividend that we are going to uh, otherwise lose out on? So I agree with you that there is a serious problem of uh, people and knowledge. So uh, Kelkar always says that uh, in the 80s and the 90s, there was a whole network of 40, 50 people who were in all the key uh, elements of the Indian state who were talking to each other, who were developing a shared worldview and philosophy, who were able to collaborate with each other, who were able to support each other, who were able to protect each other. And that kept the whole thing going. And this is an incredibly important part of the story about what happened there, that it was knowledge, it was research, it was intellectuals, it was papers, it was books, and it was people. It was people who were able to come together and do things. And going forward, that's what we're going to need all over again. We're going to need people we're going to need uh, an intellectual framework. We're going to need papers. We're going to need books. And uh, in that, the present situation is particularly troublesome because uh, some of the old organizations that used to uh, house these people and nurture these people have encountered uh, bad times. So many of the traditional economics and policy institutions are frankly in disarray. And these are places which used to incubate people and they are going away. So I'm really at a loss for how to think about this. I agree with your problem statement that we're going to need a body of knowledge and people for a future date when there is an attempt at changing this. And at present, uh, we are in fact going backwards because uh, one by one, some of the institutions that used to house and protect and nurture the people and the knowledge building project uh, are actually coming apart and falling into disarray. So when we look ahead, um, if there are a few things that people uh, like you can essentially help drive or people like us can help drive, um, what are the one or two things which would be very useful to actually look forward to? I think uh, Hayek basically makes this point about ideas and uh, the power of ideas and knowledge, etc. And you talked about that. How can we start laying the foundations again for something like this? So I'd like to say two things that I feel, so first is an, is an emotional position and a comment. I feel we should not become despondent. It's a difficult time, but you know, uh, 
the thing to do in tough times is to be uh, more resilient and you know we've got to watch our minds and not collapse into despondence so this is a difficult moment in india's history we've never seen a minus 24% gdp growth ever before and uh, we've got to handle our own selves and not become too unhappy and not become too despondent we've got to stay optimistic okay think of how impossibly difficult it was for uh, tilak and gokhale and gandhi ji and nehru to have this idea that they were going to take on the most powerful empire of the world and ask for freedom for india without an army without a gun okay what an audacious idea what a crazy idea but the point is you know they committed themselves to that kind of project and uh, they got through and in the end it worked so i feel that the world looks difficult but you should not be despondent similarly think of the depth of uh, the emergency my father had an opportunity to leave india at the time and move to washington dc and work for the world bank instead my father chose to build an organization in india in the darkest days of the emergency he made the call that no here is where i belong and here is where i stay and i'm going to commit to this country and i'm going to be part of building this country so i think that's the first point that we should not become too pessimistic we should stay focused that you know there's something great about this country and we are here and we are part of this country and we owe something to this country and we've got to build this country my second comment is that uh, uh, ideas matter more than we think and key people that can be a part of the change matter more than we think so i feel we should keep building knowledge uh, build papers uh, build books uh, so you know for example that my colleagues and i have built an uh, a modern digital uh, journal which is called the leap blog which is really a outlet where sophisticated novel research connected to india comes out and uh, we should build knowledge we should keep writing and you know we should be talking to each other we should be uh, investing in young people we should be building people i think that's a good agenda you don't know how this goes you don't know how this changes uh, one can never predict how this goes where will passion and energy come to rebuild uh, the republic one can't tell but we've got to do these things and so that for example is how kelkar and i felt the zeal to sit together and write this book uh, so ajay uh, it's, it's been a, it's been an absolutely illuminating uh, session with you we come to the last one or two questions and one of the things that i leave with is that i think the bimari of berozgari to my mind from when i take away the conversation from you is is the biggest thing as i as i take away saying that uh, i i remember my dad growing up and uh, him tell him telling me a lot on uh, berozgari and that being the biggest uh, pain and if you go back if you see hindi movies as well yeah. it was all about the the youth with the angry man probably came out yeah. from energy but no way to channel it and i i think what you're saying is absolutely right uh this is cutting fast because we wanted to cl- close this also and you you said that one book that you'd want to give nehru we didn't get that book and <laughs> yeah <laughs> and uh, two three books that you think uh, uh, people should probably read in your read in their lives probably that influenced you of course besides the book that you've written which i would hi- highly recommend but uh, any books that uh, you come to mind and which is the book that you will give nehru um yeah so uh, the, the in informal uh, this this sounds very self aggrandizing but one of the mission statements of the book that kelkar and i wrote was this that if we could get into a time machine and give nehru one book what would we tell him and you know this was that uh, it's very embarrassing to say that um Uh, what is a book that i would encourage uh, people to read uh, one of the most important influences in my life has been a book called seeing like a state by james c scott um, it's it's a deep book it challenges you it, it certainly shook me in a lot of my complacence and arrogance it uh, made me think more about the world it made me more humble and it, it's a tremendous set of insights into how the world works uh, that yeah. that be interesting rajesh any closing ajay um, when you look back i think it's been sort of 30 years uh, in the world of economics and you've sort of expanded into uh, the intersection with law and of course public policy um if you were to look back at say a turning point for you personally in life what would that be yeah i think uh, one turning i think one key turning point was when uh, 
Jashwant Sinha and Rakesh Mohan invited me to join the Ministry of Finance. So I was there for four years and it was just, it was a tornado in my mind. It changed the way I think about the world. So I was always interested in economics and policy. I'd been doing it all along from 93 onwards from the outside, but living for four years inside that Ministry of Finance was really the turning point that I think I, will, I had the opportunity to be part of some really great things and forever it changed the way I approached this because I saw something about the Indian state there. In fact, um, I remember uh, meeting you once at the Ministry of Finance. Okay. Uh, uh, and I was, it was like, I was awestruck by the building. I mean, it, you just walked down that whole uh, Rashtrapati Bhavan and then you have this North Block and South Block and, and you wait yeah. uh, there. Um, it was quite an, quite an interesting experience. Yeah. And I think when, 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 you, when you look back, I think, uh, I do hope that the, the, the optimism uh, that was there of the early 2000s, um, because that is more closer in our memories. You know, at, yes. I think at the 90s, we were probably still uh, yeah. quite young at that time. Uh, that comes back. I think we are seeing it in some sectors in India, yeah. um, but also we are seeing the sort of growth of government into many other sectors in India. Yeah. And like you've said, I think if, if we can get those uh, three or four core areas going yeah. uh, on what the government really should be doing, and then there are lo lots of areas where the government should be stopping doing. Um, I think we yet have an opportunity to lay the foundation uh, for a great India going forward. Uh, Jamit, uh, closing thoughts? Yeah, uh, it's been, it's been uh, illuminating. It's one of those conversations where uh, in a hippo brain conversations at the end of it, my brain is outside and I'm wondering how to push this all back in. It's, it's been a brain blender experience. <laughs> uh, it's challenged a lot of the notions of what I've learned and what I've experienced. Yes, over a period of time, I keep saying that this destiny child is those born in 1975 who've seen the old India where there was nothing. There were no textbooks. I had bad notebooks. I had a bad ink pen, which would always not work. And I see my daughter in a very, very different environment. And it, it is thanks to the power and some one other hippo brain said, unleashing the power of enterprise on, on uh, opportunity. And I think what you're saying is absolutely uh, interesting there. Ajay, another big one, which I like, I love the humility at which you said that we probably didn't have the intellectual uh, capacity at that time to understand that when we were building these regulators, we, we probably gave far too much power, far too much responsibility to these regulators. And when I look back and I think back, I think that's an extremely important point that you're, you're raising that the ability and my firm belief has been that uh, democracy is ground up. So whether it's your housing society, whether it's your uh, BMC, I mean, your municipal society, then it's state, then it's center at every point of time. There is a check and balance. There is a political and there is a regulatory. And at every point of time, you, it is up to us to question and challenge and not allow the regulator to go beyond what it needs to be. Because finally, it's people like you and me who empower the regulator. And uh, I think it's extremely valid. I have learned a lot today. Uh, Rajesh, any, any summarizing points from you uh, before I close? No, I think... My only recommendation to everyone is, uh, I think our generation really has to build the new India. And I think a great starting point would be Ajay's book. It's, it's not very technical, very simple language. Uh, it's the dream book. Ajay told me that time that uh, before you finish the book, Rajesh, you will love this book. And I have to say, this is something which I hope all of us can read because we are all in a way children of, of India's reforms, which started in, in, in the 90s. And uh, for us to grow and I think create a better India for uh, um, the rest of our lives and the next generation, I think it's very important that we understand it's finally ideas and people which really change uh, the fortunes of a country. Uh, it has to be bottom up in a country like India. Uh, and I think I hope uh, we can make that happen in the next uh, 10 to 15 years, which the window that uh, Ajay says is still available for us to reap the uh, demographic dividend. Ajay, uh, I'll leave it to you to closing thoughts and then Jamit will wrap it up. So thanks a lot, Rajesh and Jamit. Uh, it's a pleasure to do this kind of conversation with you. And uh, <clears throat> I look forward to continuing this endless debate uh, in over chai uh, and offline and on physically. Absolutely. Jamit?
Thank you. Thank you, Ajay. Thank you, Rajesh. It's been an absolutely brilliant hippobrain conversation with, uh, with, uh, with Ajay. And uh, subscribe and uh, like us. Yes, you, you should press the like icon on YouTube. This allows you to get more such information that you would love uh, to listen to and learn from. Thank you for bringing an absolutely brilliant uh, guest today, Ajay. And thank you, Rajesh. And thank you all for listening to us.